Welcome to the West Virginia Soccer Association Beyond the Pitch podcast here on the West Virginia Soccer Association Digital Network. My name is Marcus Cole. Now, before we begin today's show, I want to remind you that once you've had a chance to check out our program, make sure you give our podcast a five-star rating and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. That helps you stay up to date on all the latest content from us and helps us get out the word to others and let them know that we're providing valuable information for soccer players, coaches, referees, and parents. On the show today, we welcome her back for her second episode is uh, Dr. Ashley Coker-Cranny from Whole Brain Solutions. Doctor, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Now, on today's episode, we're going to be continuing our conversation on eating disorders. Last week, we had on Fairmont State University women's soccer player, Kierigan Johnson, and she talked to us about her struggles and her real-life battle with an eating disorder that started about a year ago uh, this month. And, um, you know, a lot of great feedback we've gotten on that episode and kind of wanted to get a personal account of of what uh, somebody goes through when they have an eating disorder and what their thoughts are and that type of thing. Now I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit to the clinical aspect of that. And that's why we're having uh, the doctor on the show today. Why don't we go ahead and dive right in? And why don't you give us the clinical definition of an eating disorder? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny to think about that question, because it, it really depends on what eating disorder we're talking about. So there are three eating disorders in particular that are pretty well known. So oftentimes we think of anorexia nervosa, and in particular with anorexia, we think of very underweight individuals who kind of restrict their diet a significant amount, often kind of fasting for long periods of time and um, that kind of stuff. And the the criteria to be uh, diagnosed with anorexia nervosa is understandably a bit different than the second well-known eating disorder, which is bulimia nervosa. Um, And bulimia is often characterized by periods of kind of binging on large amounts of food and then using some kind of compensatory or purging behavior along with it. Um, With athletes in particular, we may not see as much of maybe the vomiting or the diuretics use, but we often see exercise as one of those purging behaviors. And then the third type of eating disorders that's that's very commonly talked about is binge eating disorder, which is those periods of binging um, without necessarily the purging kind of aspect afterwards. Um, But there are other kind of subclinical or specified versions of eating disorders that are um, out there as well, but they're just a little bit less known. Some of those are related to rumination or kind of throwing up and and not necessarily having to binge beforehand. Um, There's an interesting thing for female athletes in particular that we have identified as the female athlete triad, which consists of anorexia, um, amenorrhea, which is the um, infrequency or uh, absence of menstrual cycles, Mm -hmm. and then osteoporosis. So then obviously there's some bone health concerns there as well as bone density decreases. Um, Athletes can also have kind of a subclinical version of eating disorders called anorexia athletica, which is really about um, restriction, particularly in combination with over-exercise as a means for weight control. Um, And then we sometimes see what's called orthorexia, which is a hyper-focus on healthy foods and the widespread kind of condemnation of what are seen as less healthy foods. Do so you there's th- kind of a lot of different things and they all have different criteria, but that's a general overview. 
Do you think that uh, eating disorders are more common in athletes than non-athletes? That's a hard question to answer. Um, research has shown us yes and no. So part of it depends on the kind of sport we're looking at. Part of us, de- part of it depends on the competition level. Um, it's pretty well widely accepted in eating disorder circles that we do see it a little bit more frequently in athletes in part because of the unique sport-specific pressures that they face. Um, but in general, whether we're looking at an athlete or non-athlete, it's important to identify because if we look specifically at anorexia, it has about a 10% mortality rate, which means that of all the mental health disorders you can have, you are most likely to die from anorexia Wow! in comparison to some of the other ones. Um, and if we look at adolescents in particular, we tend to see between about 1% to 15% of adolescents will have either clinical or subclinical eating disorders. So it, it's definitely a problem that we need to be more aware of. I agree. I agree. That's the reason. And that's the reason why we're having you on the program is, you know, these are things that we need to be talking about as coaches, as players, as parents. And, um, you know, we need to educate our our kids and educate those around us that these uh, issues are out there. And sometimes, you know, we don't know that these issues are going on. And, um, you know, in the case of Kerrigan, she said, she, you know, she hit it for five months. Uh, before she yeah. just got to the point where she just knew she couldn't do it on her own anymore and she knew she needed help and that's when she asked for it. Why don't you go ahead and talk yeah. to us about the typical progression of someone uh, with an eating disorder? Yeah, it really kind of depends on which eating disorder we're looking at as to exactly how it is that it progresses. But in general, what it is that we see is there tends to be kind of a high recognition on weight-related pressures in the athlete's lives. So whether that is just societal things and stuff in the media, um, we know that adolescents as young as like elementary school age, when they look at magazines, 50 to 90% of them will say, oh, I need to be thinner, I need to be this, I need to be that, just because of the images that we have kind of in general media and that thin ideal that is really perpetuated. Um, Other pressures that we might have specific to sport, coaches might make comments about how much faster or farther an athlete could run if they lost a few pounds, um, they may say, you know, get your butt across that line or something like that, that the implication is that there's an issue with the athlete's body that needs to be kind of managed and taken care of. But other pressures we might see might be related to uniforms. It might be just fans in the stands and the choice things that they say, you know, to kind of get under an athlete's skin. Um, it can come from other teammates who might be doing different things to regulate um, their body shape or size or function. It could also be family too, Um, especially athletes who have a family history of eating disorders, maybe mom, sister, brother, dad, uncles, you know, people that were close to them that they kind of heard talk negatively about their bodies um, and maybe even saw them get on diets or restrict or walked in on them purging or things like that. All of those kinds of weight pressures are important to acknowledge because that's where a lot of kind of the ideas start. What happens next is what we call internalization, which is where athletes take all those pressures that they're exposed to and they kind of internalize them to say, oh, this is what I should be doing. This is how I should look. And here's how it is that I'm best able to kind of achieve that. And then as a result, then body image dissatisfaction increases, overall negative mood increases, all of those kinds of things. Um, which then leads to a lot of dietary restraint as well as a drive for either thinness or muscularity, depending on who we're talking about and in what context. 
and then athletes engage in various behaviors to kind of improve how it is that they feel about themselves and their bodies. Like I mentioned before, we had Kerrigan Johnson of Fairmont State University. She's on the women's soccer team uh, on our program to talk about her issues with eating disorders, you know, and she um, mentioned, like you had said, about she saw uh, her body change uh, in college soccer. She said it wasn't really a change in high school, but once, you know, the level of training ramped up in college, the conditioning, uh, training sessions, weight room uh, sessions and things like that, you know, she saw her body change and it was different than what she saw in her teammates, even though they did the same exact thing. Um, she yeah. said that that was that's what led her to start uh, down this path. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that those transitions are, are of critical importance. So sometimes we see that just going from, say, middle school to high school, high school to college. You know, here everybody's doing the same thing, but my body's changing at a different rate. We may also see that a little bit earlier, like in puberty, because everyone develops at different rates. Some people might develop a little bit faster, um, some people a little bit slower, which makes them a little bit more self-conscious about their bodies. And when it looks or seems or feels different than the way that others around them, bodies are changing, um, then that's really disruptive to how it is that they relate to their own bodies. And for all the amazing things in sport, because it really does offer so many protective factors, um, the reality is that sports sometimes treats the body like a machine so I can just bend it to my will. So then if I combine that with noticing that my body is changing at a different rate or pace or in a different way than my teammates around me, that can be really disruptive because now I'm thinking, oh, well, I just need to do something differently. I just need to kind of control my body and bend it to my will because it's worked for me in sports. If I just train harder, if I just run longer, if I just do those things, it responds. So why wouldn't it respond in this way either, which creates a, a negative relationship with our bodies based on what it is that we're seeing. Now, if, uh, if uh, someone um, starts to develop an eating disorder, what does that do to their mental performance on the field? And I would even think in the classroom. Yeah, um, it has a lot of different effects, and it really does depend on what it is that they're doing to manage their body. Um, one of the things that we see, especially with restriction, is just you can't concentrate as much. So in general, your brain needs about 40% of the calories that you need on a daily basis, but it's one of the last places your body will actually allocate those calories. So if you aren't getting enough good nutrition, then your brain can't function the way that it's supposed to, which means that maybe you feel foggy, confused. Maybe there's a lack of focus. Everything just seems kind of dull. All of those things happen because it's just not getting the fuel that it needs. So then athletes who are um, struggling because they're not fueling right, maybe they can't remember new plays as well. Uh, maybe they can't really stay focused and engaged on what it is that they're doing. They often have to ask questions multiple times, which then makes them feel worse and kind of continues that cycle of, oh, well, if my body just looks better, then I would kind of feel better. And then from a physical standpoint, we see all kinds of different consequences um, of eating disorders. Um, aside from the osteoporosis and the amenorrhea that I mentioned earlier, it may be that hair and nails and skin are dry, maybe brittle or yellowish. We can see anemia develop, so their bloodstream is not able to carry the oxygen that it needs because it doesn't have the iron that it needs to do that. Um, we can see all kinds of digestive issues whether that's constipation or irritation from um, using laxatives a lot, breakdown of enamel on the teeth, 
uh, from purging and those kinds of things. And then from a more subtle perspective, we do see a drop in blood pressure as well as slowed breathing and slowed heart rate, um, changes in body temperature, and then just a lot of fatigue kind of come along with that. And it's hard to, to continue through your training when it feels like your body just won't go anymore. So there are a lot of physical as well as mental consequences. Um, and we do see an increase in mood disorders for individuals with eating disorders. So we're more likely to see OCD. We're more likely to see um, depression and anxiety. We're also more likely to see a trauma history in individuals with eating disorders. So we're, we're likely to see post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Wow. You know, one thing that uh, Kerrigan said, uh, you know, was a big thing for her was body image and things that she would see on social media. Um, you know, I mean, I love social media and, and I, I believe in the good in social media that um, that there is out there. Of course, you know, with anything good comes bad things about it. Um, talk to us a little bit about that of the body image and social media and maybe our expectations of what we should look like as you know, compared to what, what, what's real. Yes. Yeah. And I think social media is so important because there are parts of social media that are really helpful for us. They can provide us a community to feel like, Oh, I'm not the only one that feels this way. I can get through it, you know, together. But the other thing that social media unfortunately does is it perpetuates a thin ideal in our country that says that women are supposed to look a certain way. And that has to do with the percentage of body fat the proportion of the length of their arms and their legs and things like that that kind of happen. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't mix well with sports. So then athletes kind of have this um, double and competing pressure of, oh, well, I need to look thin, but in order to perform well in my sport, I also need a lot of muscle. And it's kind of changed over the years a little bit, but it's hard to find athletes who also fit that thin ideal. And so you might find adolescents that just don't really know where it is that they fit and which ideal they should subscribe to and how it is that they should kind of experience that. But there's a lot of pressure. Do I look the way that I want to look? If I eventually want to go to college and potentially play pro, you know, am I developing in a way that I think will eventually get me there? And if what they're seeing on social media is just everything is rainbows and sunshine and super skinny, then that becomes the expectation that that's what it is that I should be. And if I'm not, then there's something wrong with me. Um, so I need to do something about it. And oftentimes that means I'll resort to things that are harmful to my body in the short and long term because I really can't see that far ahead. And, you know, that's the thing I, I talked to my daughter. She's a collegiate soccer player. And I have always told her from the beginning is that you're going to look different than most of your friends. I said, because you are an athlete and you are yeah. someone that, you know, competes at a higher level than, you know, maybe just the, the someone who plays soccer in, or in high school. Um, you know, she played club soccer, played ODP. Um, I said, you know, it's a little bit more serious for you and your goals and your aspirations because she wanted to play in college and now she's doing that. I said, you're going to look different uh, than everybody else. I said, and that's okay. And, you know, we've mm -hmm. got we've got to be able to tell our athletes that that's okay and 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 do whatever we can to uh, perpetuate uh, that thought process in them that it's, a, you know, you're not going to have, uh, you know, you, you may not, you may be a lot more muscular than the other girls mm -hmm. and that, you know, and that's okay. Um, yeah. 
one thing one thing Kerrigan mentioned too that she knew she was what she was doing was wrong. She knew in her head that this was not good for her. This was not good for her soccer career. It was not good for her life. It was not good for her call, you know, her college academics and stuff. But yet she did it anyway because of those pressures. Give us some thought on that. Yeah. So some of the things that we see sort of contribute to that, and I do hear it all the time, is I know that I shouldn't do this, but I can't stop now. Um, Some of the things that contribute to that are just an overemphasis on that athletic identity. When athletes, in my field, we call it identity disclosure. When athletes think most, if not all, of their identity on their athletic performance, then that means they'll do just about anything to protect that part of their identity. And so they will do things that they know are not helpful and not good for them because in the short term they might see gains. I mean, we would be naive to say, oh, yeah, well, if you lost five pounds, you might be able to feel, at least in the short term, like you can run a little bit faster, a little bit longer because you're carrying less weight. Of course you do. The problem is a couple of weeks or a couple of months down the road, that isn't sustained. But by that point, those habits and those beliefs about this is what I have to look like and here's what it is that's required and this this is a hallmark of what makes me a real athlete is that I'm willing to make these sacrifices and I'm willing to endure the pain and the injury and all of the missed opportunities and everything else. You know, if I, if I'm getting reinforcement that that makes me a better athlete and that's how I define myself, it's so much harder to stop doing it. Um, because we're prioritizing that athletic identity over anything else. And then if we throw on top of it, you know, issues with perfectionism or a need for control and some of those other things that we often see with eating disorders, those beliefs are, are in large part why it's so difficult to make a change and, and do something different, even though we know what we're doing is not good. Now, if I'm an athlete and I see myself getting into this situation where I, I, I start doing the types of behaviors that you're talking about, what should be my first step? Yeah, uh, tell somebody. Absolute first step is tell somebody. You know, I was I was just watching a, a national conference presentation on um, on eating disorders with youth um, soccer players, and one of the biggest barriers to detecting eating disorders early and getting help early is the stigma that we have about mental health in sports. Um, and so one of the best things that an athlete can do is tell a parent, tell a coach, tell a trusted friend, they're not going to diagnose you. They may have some ideas about what's happening, um, but you're going to need that support to kind of move forward and get the professional help that you need. And the earlier we can detect eating disorders, the more successfully we can treat those um, with the least long-term effects. And so we need to be able to know early what's going on and then get the kind of professional help that we need to address those beliefs before they become so ingrained that it's a years long battle um, or it's a lifetime battle. And so, um, yeah, telling somebody is the first piece of advice that I have for any athlete who says, oh, you know what? I didn't realize this, but maybe this is a problem. You, you know, know, and if it's not a problem, you've got support as well that way, too. Right. And, you know, and I, and I don't like to I don't want to seem like I am bashing on a generation of sorts, but I know when I was playing sports and something was wrong or what have you, the 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 
the consistent, I guess, theme that I got from my parents when I mentioned it was, oh, just toughen up. Just, you know, yeah. just it's, you know, just get over it, get over yourself, get, get it back out there, work harder and that type of thing. And, um, I know that, you know, things are changing within society that, you know, some of these mental health issues are becoming, um, more accepted, I guess, that we're able to talk about it a little bit more. But, you know, if an athlete does have that and they go to a parent and, you know, or coach or whatever, and they get that kind of thing, you know, I'm sure that they probably get discouraged and, and think that, well, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, maybe I am blowing this out of proportion and maybe I'm, you know, I just need to toughen up a little bit more. What advice would you give to that athlete at that point? Yeah, um, and, and that's also a problem that I see fairly often, and you're right, it is because in sport largely, and I do think that it's changing, yeah. um, but in sport largely we have had that, you know, get up, brush it off, keep going kind of mentality. You know your body well, and you know what you're doing well, and if you've opened up to request support from someone and been rejected in that way, it hurts a lot, and you feel a lot of shame. What what you've got to be able to do is say, no, I know that something's really wrong here, and telling mom didn't help anything who else can I go to maybe that's a, a coach or if the head coach isn't um, supportive maybe it's an assistant coach maybe it's a teacher at school um, or a counselor at school um, maybe it's a friend's parents who are a little bit more attentive and and those kinds of things that can kind of help get that ball rolling if you've got that feeling in your gut that I know I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing and I'm scared there's a reason to listen to it and so if you're not getting support the first or second or 15th time you've tried, keep reaching out. Someone somewhere will be able to recognize what's going on and getting you that help. Um, but the worst thing you can do is say, oh, they're right. This is nothing for me to worry about. And then it goes undiagnosed. And all of a sudden you're in the hospital on a feeding tube fighting for your life. As we kind of wrap things up here, doctor, uh, what can we, and by we, I mean coaches, parents, teammates, what can we do if we suspect someone has an eating disorder or if someone has the courage to come out and say, I think I have a problem, I may have an eating disorder, what do I do? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to break that question into a couple of different things. Okay. But in terms of like prevention side of it, it's important for parents and coaches and other role models in athletes' lives to really be aware of what you're saying and how you're saying it because you may not mean something um, so that that's degrading or upsetting about an athlete's body, but they may take it that way. So be very careful about the things that you're saying. Um, in my own research, I've seen a lot of instances where a coach has made a comment about a teammate's body, and that's affected an athlete who the comment wasn't even directed towards. So be very careful about those things that you're saying. In general, we should never comment on another athlete's body. Um, if she's lost weight and she's looking a little bit trim, she already knows that. She doesn't need reinforcement because all that's going to do is perpetuate that. Um, and I should say or he because this happens in men as well. Um, and we can't discount um, the fact that it's occurring there too. The other thing from a preventative standpoint is to think about the things that you're doing. Your son or daughter will model what it is that they see from you. And if you have a disruptive relationship with your body, they're likely to develop a disruptive relationship with their body which can progress into eating disorders. So if mom is on diets constantly or if dad overtrains and uses a lot of supplements and things like that, we're likely to see athletes really emulate that kind of behavior. So um, really paying attention to what you're doing is really important. 
And then we also need to make sure that we're educating athletes in advance about their body. We need to prepare them for the fact that, okay, when you hit puberty, your body's going to change in these ways. And it's not going to look the same as everybody else because everybody else does this at different times. And same thing when we go to high school and same thing when we go to college, we need to have a lot of those conversations about what the body is designed to do, how it works, how it is that nutrition and recovery are just as important for performance as training is. And so if we can have those conversations and shift how it is that athletes are relating to their bodies, we have really a much better chance. And then the last thing from a preventative standpoint is just having a very supportive environment. One of the greatest risks for athletes with eating disorders is having a, a sport environment that is entirely focused on performance. Now, whether that comes from coaches, parents, or teammates, when we shift the focus from personal development to sport achievement, we tend to see an increase, a pretty dramatic increase in eating disorder symptoms. And then from a treatment standpoint, which is I think what you originally were looking at, um, coaches and parents need to seek professional help. Your athlete may not be ready to come in and talk to me yet, but that doesn't mean that you can't reach out to me and say, hey, here's what it is that I'm seeing. What do I need to be alarmed about? What is it that I need to look at? What are next steps, steps need to be? And my response may be, yeah, you need to bring them in and let's talk. But it may also be, okay, so I'm hearing this and this and that. I'm not convinced that that's an eating disorder yet. Let's just talk about the other things that I want you to look out for. Here are the things that I want you to think about in terms of your own behaviors and the things that you're saying um, and the environment that the athlete is in and whether or not that's productive and healthy for them. So seeking consultation from a professional is incredibly helpful. And then they'll know whether or not to refer your athlete for assessment and treatment or whether there's something else underlying kind of what's happening and eating disorders are just more of a symptom, which we sometimes, like I said, see in, in trauma work um, when we know that trauma is a high correlate of eating disorders as well. So and, ask the professional. Yeah. And gosh, and, and you just, you hit the nail on the head just in, in this overall answer that you gave is, is, is we got to have a support system for them. Yeah. Have to have a support Absolutely. system and, and listen and, and, uh, uh, you know, help them in, help them in any way that we can. Yes. And I will say too, with adolescent athletes in particular, sometimes what parents want to do is kind of bring their athlete into me and say, Hey, fix them. I'll see <laughs> yeah. you later. Yeah. Um, that's not always effective. Uh, so often so much of this stuff comes from a family system or is influenced by the other contextual and environmental things that are going on. So as a parent, be prepared that you might get into family therapy. Um, and, and be excited about that and model excitement to be in family therapy with your kid because there are probably a lot of things going on at home that are contributing to what's happening. Um, if you're a coach, be excited and open to having a professional come in and talk to your team and you be there and you ask questions and you reinforce the stuff that they're talking about. So really, as a gatekeeper, it's not just about making the referral. It's also about being an active part of that process and being excited about it and modeling this openness and acceptance of what comes next. And even coaches that can, that can, you know, maybe bring in a professional to talk about it and just start the open dialogue with your players and helping them understand, because, you know, maybe somebody comes in like you and talks a little bit mm -hmm. about it, like you're talking about it now. And then somebody on the team realizes, shoot, I may have a problem. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and then that kind of helps there and then they understand a little bit more because I think I, I just don't think sometimes that our athletes and, and those who suffer from this understand, you know, that it's OK to ask for help. 
yes. And sometimes I find that teammates aren't sure what to do. Like, oh, I've seen my friend do this and this and that. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to blow the whistle on them. You know, I don't want to be disloyal. Um, but in not speaking up and saying, hey, I'm concerned about you, or going to coach and saying, hey, I'm concerned about this person, there may be nothing there. It may be okay, but it also might not be. And so part of being a good teammate um, is being able to recognize that. And that's happened on multiple occasions just in my own practice. If I go in and talk to a team, and then all of a sudden a teammate talks to me afterwards and says, hey, I have this friend. And I go, okay, here's what it is that I want you to do when we create a plan that, that kind of outlines those next steps. And that's a difficult conversation to have, um, but especially with anorexia nervosa, it is much more difficult for those patients to recognize that there is a problem versus like bulimia and binge eating disorder where oftentimes they recognize there is. So sometimes they need that caring teammate to come in and help them as well. Um, and sometimes it just takes those, those team sessions or the things that coaches can coordinate to kind of open that door. And we don't get rid of stigma by not talking about it. One so thing, if we know that stigma is a barrier, we got to talk about it. One thing Kerrigan mentioned that helped her in, in her ongoing recovery with an eating disorder was the incredible support that she got from her coaches and her teammates. She's, yeah. yeah, she said what she said without them, she said uh, it would have been so much harder to to deal with all this and and be able to go through the process, she said. But they're they're with me every step of the way. Yes. And if we can create that culture to be open and accepting and supportive, our athletes stand a much better chance than right. when we close it off and tell them to dust it off and move on. I agree. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for coming on our program today and, and talking My about pleasure. this subject because, uh, like I said before, I said it's something that we need to have more talks about and more discussions about, and uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the West Virginia Soccer Association Beyond the Pitch podcast here on the West Virginia Soccer Association Digital Network. Now that you've heard our show, make sure you give our podcast a five-star rating and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode, so we hope to see you next week. Take care.